Well, we've done it. We've come to the final sermon in our Becoming Whole series. The last 12 weeks, we've been looking at biblical transformation and what that means and what that looks like in our life. And today, we're, we're just going to do really an overview uh, of the entire uh, process and what that looks like. And here's what we need to know today. Transformation is not a point in time. It is a process over a lifetime. It has a definite beginning, but it will go on until eternity. And so we could ask, well, how do we know where we're at in this process? How do we know we're progressing? How are we doing in this? Are there any markers or indication that we could look at? A couple summers ago, I was uh, in Rome, the city of Rome, with some friends, and uh, they wanted to see much of the city, and so we got one of those little tour maps, and we're finding the places we need to go, and we're running all over the city, I think, for 12 hours or something crazy, and we saw all these different sites. But we needed a map to tell us where do we go, what to look for, what are the indicators. And so in our spiritual journey, what are the markers, what are the indicators that we have? Has God given us them? And the answer is yes. And uh, you might be surprised, uh, but he's given us to them and one of the most famous sermons ever preached, one of the most famous parts of Scripture, the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. And what we see with these is that they are all connected. We're not to deal with them separately, but they actually are progressive. One builds on the previous one. And so they all are happening at the same time. And they then provide for us some spiritual markers for what it looks like, how we've personally progressed in our transformation. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 today, verses 1 to 12. You can go there in your Bibles. My name is Justin. It's good to be with you all here. If you're joining us online, uh, so glad you can join us wherever we find you. Uh, we hope that you're blessed by this sermon today, that God would speak to you. And so I'm going to pray for us in a minute, but let me mention again that we are 28 days into our churchwide movement of 150 days of prayer, where we're praying for three things. We're praying for uh, a, uh, a permanent home, uh, a permanent location for, for One Hope to do more effective ministry from. We're praying for spiritual health, for transformation, what this whole series has been about, that if we can become healthy spiritually, God can do great things, which leads us to the third thing we're praying about, revival in and through One Hope Church, a spiritual awakening to the things of God and to the power of God. And so for the last 28 days, we've had 28 different people praying for these things. And so I want to invite you, if you haven't yet participated in that, to sign up on onehope.info or churchcenter.com. You can sign up for a day to pray and join us in this prayer movement. And let's see what God is going to do over the next 122 days. So let me pray for our time today because nothing happens without prayer. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, as always, that it speaks powerfully to us, that it has the power to change us, to give us life, to make us whole. And as we come to your word today, we pray for just that. Holy Spirit, that you would come and illuminate the scriptures and empower us uh, to, to, to live according to what your word says. And so we give you this time. You know where each of us are. You know what we need to hear. You know where we need to go. So I pray that you would take us there now and speak to us through your word by the power of your spirit. And we pray all this in your name, Jesus, and by your spirit. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 5, looking at the Beatitudes, which is really kind of an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. But let me orient us a little bit to what's going on in Matthew. 
Because what we really see here is this whole thing is in the context of discipleship. And the goal of discipleship is transformation. It's a transformed life. And so Matthew chapter 3, we see this character, John the Baptist, showing up on the scene and, and preaching about repentance of sin and saying that someone's going to be coming greater than him. And then he baptizes Jesus. And Jesus, it says, is led by the Spirit into the desert, into the wilderness, where he fasts for 40 days and he is tempted by the enemy. He engages in spiritual warfare. This is all preparation for his public ministry, which picks up in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, where it says, Jesus came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So this is Jesus' message. The kingdom of heaven is here. And then right after that, we see the calling of his first disciples. First, he calls Andrew and Peter in the middle of their job. As they're going through life, he calls them to follow him, and they immediately do. And then he goes and finds John and uh, James, the sons of Zebedee, and he calls them to follow him, and they do. And so this is what discipleship is. It's following Jesus. And in the section right before Matthew 5, we see a summary of Jesus' mission. He's preaching about the kingdom of God. He's teaching about uh, who God is and what he's done. He's healing people. Crowds are being drawn to him, and people are getting a taste of the kingdom. And this brings us up to the Sermon on the Mount, where we read in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, that seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. Saying. So Jesus is going to be teaching them about what this kingdom life looks like. What does it mean to be a part of the kingdom of heaven? And notice here it says the crowds and the disciples have come. And this is often what we see in response to Jesus. There are those who are disciples who are committed to following Jesus and they come up and they're ready to follow and listen to whatever he says. And then there's this other group of people, the crowds, who haven't quite committed to Jesus, but they're curious about who he is and what he has to say. And this is what we find in Many of our churches, and if you're joining online, maybe you're just curious about who Jesus is and, and what he has to say. And of course, the goal is, is that everyone would move from a crowd member to a committed disciple and enter into uh, a, a kingdom life, what we've called a transformed life. And so he opens up with the Beatitudes, which again is kind of a, the essentials of the Sermon on the Mount, the introduction uh, to everything he's about to say. Now, as we walk through these, I'm not going to be able to go into any kind of depth uh, as I would like to go in these. So I would commend to you uh, a book called The Key to Deep Change by Dr. Uh, Steve Smith. And this book actually follows quite nicely along with the series. And in chapter nine of this book, he really walks through much of what I'm gonna share with you today. Uh, and so if you wanna learn more, uh, I would encourage you to get this book, work through the whole book, but uh, chapter nine especially, talking about the Beatitudes. So what, is, what are the Beatitudes? Well, the word comes from the Latin word uh, beatus, uh, which means blessed or happy. Blessedness biblically is a state of well-being and relationship to God. And in truth, all of us, no matter where we're at, no matter if we're walking with God or not, we want to live a blessed life. We want to live a fulfilled life, a satisfied life, a life of purpose, a life of dignity. It's what everyone is searching for. I want to live a blessed life. But true blessing only comes from God. And so where does it begin? Where does this all begin? Where does the transformed life begin? Well, it begins with surrender or uh, humility here. Matthew chapter five, verse three. The first of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does this mean? To be poor in spirit means that you're lacking something. You're lacking the power to fix yourself. 
You're lacking the, the know-how to pull yourself out of whatever trouble, whatever pain, whatever addictions you find yourself in. It's not something you can do yourself. Ultimately, this means coming to the end of yourself and your own self-salvation projects, your own self-help strategies, and coming to the only one who can make you whole, the only one who can transform you. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. My two-year-old, she, uh, a couple months ago, she just started saying this when she couldn't do something. She started saying, I can't. I can't, I can't. And she'd walk up to me with whatever it is she's trying to open, the peanut butter jar. I can't, I can't, I can't. And she comes to me. And this is really the, the first beatitude. It's saying, I can't do this, Daddy, but you can. Will you? But Jesus says we have to become like little children to enter into the kingdom of God. We have to realize that we are poor in spirit. It's not, to, it's not a question of if we are, we are. It's a question of realizing that we're poor in spirit and we cannot do this ourselves. Everything we're gonna say today, everything in the Christian life is not something we can do on ourselves. It begins with being poor in spirit, recognizing I can't do this. And it is in direct opposition to human pride, which says I can if I work hard enough, if I do all the right things, if I say the right prayers, if I read the right books, if I do it, then I'll be okay. Then I can change. It's unbiblical. We need humility that says, I can't do it. But we have a God who is gracious enough to come and walk with us and to show us the way. And this really is the first act of repentance. A couple of weeks ago, we said repentance was turning, uh, uh, turning back towards God and away from your sin. It's to stop running away from God and to run towards him and to receive. And so this is the starting point for our transformed life. But it is also the point we keep coming back to over and over and over again. Anytime you realize, realize that sin has taken control over your life, we need to come back to the first beatitude and say, I can't do this. I need help. God, deliver me. As Psalm 1994 says, save me. I'm yours. Save me. I'm yours. I can't do this on my own. And so this is where a transformed life begins, and it's where it continues every step of the way because God is with us. It says theirs is the kingdom. To be a part of the kingdom, we have to submit to a king. Every kingdom has a king. And the king of the kingdom of heaven is Jesus Christ. And so we come to him as our savior and as our king. And this then leads us to want to follow him. And so how do we know we're growing in this beatitude? Well, we more quickly realize when, we, when sin has overcome our life, we more quickly realize that we can't do it on our own. I'll tell you, I've experienced this in my own life. Sooner and sooner in the process, I see that, oh, this, this is me trying to fix myself again. This is me trying to handle things rather than walking with God. And so we, we learn sooner and sooner in the process to come to God. Now, I've done a lot of counseling with people, and this is really what I found is growth in counseling growth in dealing with your emotions and in your, in your wounds, uh, really looks like this. It's not necessarily that, th 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 that those things change. It's just you become aware of what's happening sooner and sooner in the process. Further and further upstream, you realize the lies that you're believing, the sins that you're going to, the ways that you cope, and you decide, I don't have to do that anymore. There's a new way. There's a new path. 
And so this is what it looks like to grow in this beatitude. We come to the end of ourselves and we come face to face then with our own hurt and the hurt done against us, which leads us to the second beatitude, sadness. Matthew 5, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, we've talked in this series about the importance of recognizing the ways that you've been sinned against, the wounds of the heart, and grieving those wounds. We've also talked about the need to recognize the ways in which we have sinned and harmed others and ourselves. And both of those, we saw that what we needed to do was to grieve those sins, to come face to face with the hurt that we have felt and the hurt that we've caused in other people. And this is something that we are not good at because nobody, especially in our culture, wants to sit in pain. But as we saw, it's the only way to transformation. We cannot go around the pain. We have to go through the pain. And what we saw was that pain that is not transformed is ultimately transmitted. There is a cost when we don't live a transformed life. And so we have to go through the pain. But the good news is this. The blessing of this beatitude is God will comfort us in the mourning, in the grief, in the pain. And this is what is transformative. Not that you've never been hurt, or not that you won't ever be hurt again, but that God meets you in your pain and provides a tangible, powerful, transformative comfort that the world cannot give. And this is what changes us, the comfort of God. And the word here for comfort, they, will be, they shall be comforted, is parakaleo. And this word is the same form that shows up in John 14 to 16 as Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. He is called the parakaletas. So here, comfort, parakaleo, the Holy Spirit is referred to as parakaletas, which is translated as advocate, helper, Helper, a helper, comforter, or counselor. And so here is God's presence with us in the pain, God's Holy Spirit. He will meet us in the pain. The, the word literally means to come alongside. And so we don't have to avoid our pain. We can enter into it because we worship a God who also entered into the pain. And he knows the pain. And because of that, he knows us and will walk with us. And this is a great source of comfort. And so as we grow in this beatitude, we will more readily recognize our need to grieve and the need for others to grieve sin. We won't go to the sins that we need to cope with our pain as easily. We'll recognize, wait, there's a, there's a true comfort and it comes from, from God. We will turn away from the comforts of sin and remember and realize the comforts of God, which he has promised us. So blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. Which leads us then to the next beatitude, submission to God. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What does this word meek mean? What is meekness? This is not a word that we use very much in our culture, if ever. What does this word uh, mean? It can mean humble. It can mean teachable, gentle, lowly, approachable. It's about a posture. It literally means strength under control. It's the same word that Jesus uses to describe himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
This is a way that we become like Jesus. It's a way that we become teachable to what God is trying to show us. To become meek is to agree that God is the one in charge of our transformation. Meekness says, what can I learn? What are you trying to show me? What are you trying to teach me? I want to learn. I've realized I'm poor in spirit. I've grieved the reality of, of sin and brokenness, not just my sin and sin against me, against me, but we live in a broken world. I want to learn. How, what does it look like to do this? Jesus, teach me. This is what it means to be meek. It means to be open to whatever God wants to show you. It's to follow God wherever he is leading you. It means doing whatever God has called you to do, and he will call you to do outrageous things like forgive people who do not deserve forgiveness. To confess other things to people that you want to keep hidden. To give away what you want to keep. This is meekness. It's a willingness to submit to God in all things. It means walking through the healing pathway which we covered, the, re the repentant pathway which we talked about. It means following God and learning from him. And the blessing of this is that they shall inherit the earth. Now, what does this mean? Ultimately, it means at the end of time when Jesus comes back, it is those who have believed in him and put their faith in him who, who will inherit the earth. But here and now, it means returning to what God created us to be, to become more fully alive than we ever were. And progress then looks like being more ready to submit to God whatever he's revealing to you. So are you teachable? Have you confessed your poorness in spirit, your need for help? Have you grieved the reality you come to Jesus and say, help me, teach me. What is it I need to do? Which leads to the next beatitude, godly passion. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The language here is one of desires, of deep passion. And every one of us, we understand hunger and thirst. We just had Thanksgiving, right? I got to enjoy my, my first uh, leftover Thanksgiving lunch, which was amazing. It was awesome. I was hungry, I enjoyed it, and I was satisfied. Jesus uses language we can understand. This is a godly desire, passion for righteousness, for rightness in the world, for wholeness, for transformation, for justice. We long for God's righteousness. We begin to experience godly desires. And this is satisfied in two ways. First, in our own life. As we've wrestled with sin, and we've come to Jesus for the answer, and ultimately we're led to the cross of Christ, which is the righteousness of God, that our sin has been paid for, that we are no longer under the condemnation of sin, that we have been forgiven, and we then receive his righteousness, his perfect life. This happens at the cross. He takes our sin, he gives us his righteousness, and we are satisfied. Our souls are satisfied. Our souls can rest, as we talked about last week. Satisfaction has been made at the cross, but it also points to the future satisfaction when Jesus will come again and will right every wrong and will deal with every sin. And his righteousness will be established on the earth forever. And so as a believer, we long for this righteousness in our lives and in the world. But it also means as we live, 
we are being made righteous. We long to live as Jesus lived. God's desires become our desires. We wanna be like Jesus. We wanna have the heart that Jesus did. We wanna live like Jesus did. It's the outworking of Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, this great Old Testament prophecy where God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And listen to this, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Or Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. To hunger and thirst for righteousness and to have it satisfied means that our desires are becoming more of God's desires. It's a move from passivity to action. That I actually wanna work for this in the world. It's our passions that drive us. And it also means you never wanna go back to the life you were living. And you wanna help others come out of their lives of unrighteousness, of sin, and wounding. And so experiencing the righteousness of God in your life leads to the next beatitude, godly compassion. Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. Those who are merciful towards other will receive mercy. This isn't if you do this, then God will do this. Rather, it's if you've received mercy from God, you will be merciful towards others. One of those practical ways that we show mercy towards others is forgiveness. Freely giving and receiving forgiveness. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the power of forgiveness, what it means to be forgiven of our sin, and then to forgive others of their sin. Sometimes one of the most hardest things we'll do is to forgive. And so we unpack what that looks like, but forgiveness is an act of mercy. And the language here is similar to what Jesus says later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, uh, five, uh, Matthew 6, 14 and 15, and talking about forgiveness. He says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you. In other words, forgiven people forgive people. If you've experienced the forgiveness of God, the righteousness of God in your life, you will be the type of person who moves towards others and forgives and are merciful. It means you're compassionate. And compassion is a deep-seated emotion, a deep-seated longer, uh, longing for the restoration of others that comes through mercy. So having seen your need for mercy, your need for forgiveness, and experiencing that power, you're now more able to move towards others. I want to forgive you. I want to help you. I want to show compassion on you. I long for your restoration, for your wholeness, even to those, perhaps especially to those who are or who have harmed you. We begin to look more like Jesus, who cried out for the forgiveness of those who were crucifying him. This is supernatural. This is not possible in human terms. It's only possible by the power of God and growing to be more like Jesus. We move towards forgiveness and mercy towards others. And so as you grow in this, you, be, you will more readily be able to forgive others. 
You'll find yourself praying more for others, longing for their restoration, longing for their freedom, and experiencing compassion within your heart. And this leads to the next beatitude, godly vision. Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When we've walked through repentance and healing, when we've come and we've learned from Jesus, our hearts have been cleansed. We have a clean heart, a clear conscience, a pure heart. And when that happens, when all the obstacles have been removed from our path to God, we can now see him clearly as he is, as he truly is. And we more rarely defeat the lies of the enemy who tells us that God is not good, that God is not powerful, that God does not care about you, that God is holding out on you. Blessed are the pure in heart who see clearly who God is. And what you'll find is you begin to see God's work in your own life more clearly, and you begin to see God's work in others' lives more clearly. And this is what we all want, to see God at work in us and through us and in the lives of others. And of course, the day will come where we will see God face to face in the end. And it will be the most joyous experience we could imagine. Longing to see God at work here and now. One of the best ways that I've learned to do this is actually reading Christian biography. If you want to step back and see how does God work in the life of a believer over a lifetime, read Christian biography. It's been so helpful for me to see the contours of how God works in people's lives. And it all started for me a couple years ago when I watched or uh, read um, Eric Metaxas' book, uh, Bonhoeffer. That book changed my life. Seeing how one man withstood Nazi Germany and the infiltration of the German church. And I've just continued since then. And I can tell you how helpful it is to see God working in other people's lives. Those who have made it all the way through, who have finished well. In fact, I'm reading a book right now to my eight-year-old called uh, On Amy Carmichael um, through a series that's, uh, I think it's called Christian Heroes Here and Now. Nice, short-ish, 200-page books. Um, Really easy to read. There's a whole series of them by, uh, I think, Janet and Jeff Binge. So if you want to jump into this, I can't tell you how helpful it is. See how God has worked in some of these people's lives. And it will inform how God is working in your life. So we need to see God. And so the more we do this, the more we will find that our life and relationship with God has changed. We are praying to him in different ways. We're talking to others about him in different ways, as if he's really there, as if he's really real and active in our life. In fact, in uh, George Mueller's biography, if you know George Mueller, he was a godly man that God just did miraculous things through, set up orphanages in 19th century Britain. And uh, he lived a life of um, just wildness before he came to meet Jesus. But one of the things that that brought him to Jesus was going to a Bible meeting and seeing that the leader of that meeting pray and talk about God as if he was a real person. And he had never experienced this. And he was going through seminary. And this is what began to draw him into the life of Christ, into a transformed life. And so when we see God at work, it just further motivates us here to the next beatitude, step uh, number seven here, godly work 
or ministry. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, the word, word here, peace, is the Greek word, arene, but the Hebrew equivalent is the word shalom. And shalom in the Old Testament wasn't just peace. It was that, but it was much more than that. It was a sense of harmony, of fulfillment, of purpose, and of wholeness. To be a peacemaker is to be a shalom giver, one who comes and brings shalom, wholeness to people's lives. And really what this is is the multiplication of ministry. Because when you've experienced transformation in your life and when you've begun to experience wholeness in Christ, you cannot help but go and tell others about this process. Let me talk to you about Jesus. Let me tell you what he did in my life. Let me tell you how he healed me and, and what repentance looks like and what love of God looks like. You're a peacemaker, a shalom maker. It's why they're called sons of God because you're doing the same work that the son of God was doing, bringing restoration and wholeness to a broken world. It's the multiplication of ministry. You want to bring God's gospel power and wholeness to others. And as you're progressing in this, your love for God and your love for others grows. And it is less and less about yourself and more and more about God's work and what God is doing. And there's no greater joy I'm telling you, than being a part of what God is doing in someone's life. It is a great joy. It would have been nice if Jesus stopped there, but he does and he has one more for us. Godly suffering. Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so living in this way, will bring persecution, will bring affliction. Jesus clarifies in Matthew 5, 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, uh, perse persecute you and, and other kinds of evil against you falsely on my account because of Jesus, because we followed him, because we love him, because we're talking about him, because we want others to know him, persecution will come. Paul says it this way, 2 Timothy 3, 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, to live a transformed life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You see, we are not in heaven yet, though we have tasted it. We will be persecuted because we are in a spiritual war and we have enemies. And the three enemies the Bible talks about are the devil, the world, and the flesh. But notice here, this beatitude begins or ends right where we began. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is what it means to be a citizen of heaven. And what this means is, if ever we feel overwhelmed, we feel like this is all up to us, we go back to the first beatitude. So wait, I can't do this. I can't fight this battle. I can't win this war, but he can. I want to come to him. So we come to him again, beatitude number one, poor in spirit. Help me, God. And the good news is this, God is with us. In fact, God calls us to rejoice in persecution, Matthew 5, 12. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, if you're experiencing persecution because of Jesus, you're in good company. 
This has always been the case. Rejoice, be glad. God is at work with you and he will fight for you. Now, what does this look like? Enemy number one, the devil. The devil is the enemy of all that is good and righteous and whole and pure and transformative. And our culture will tell you that the devil is not real, that there's no spiritual realm, but it's a lie. The devil is real and he is active and he's engaged and he is telling you lies and he's accusing you day and night, Revelation says. And when we don't forgive, we saw in in week seven, I think it was, when we don't forgive others, we leave a door open to the enemy to come in and wreak all kinds of havoc, Ephesians 4.26. So the devil is our enemy, but 1 John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We have one who has overcome, and he is with us. What about the flesh? This is our sinful desires, the remnants of our old self, or if we haven't believed in Jesus, this is who we are. Our desires, we want to serve ourselves, love ourselves, do everything for ourselves. But God gives us his spirit, his presence within us, Galatians 5, 17. The desires of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Listen to this. The fact that you're in a struggle is the evidence that God's spirit is within you. It is good to struggle. If you weren't struggling with sin, it would mean that God is not working within you, that he would have given you over to your sin. So those who don't care about living righteously, don't care about sin, they don't have the spirit of God in them. But the fact that we struggle is evidence that God is with us. How about the world? The world is any system that does not have God as its ultimate goal, means, and power, and the world will resist the truth of God. But God's love has overcome, John 16, 13. He said, I've said these things to you, that enemy you may have peace, shalom, wholeness. In the world you will have tribulation, you will have affliction, but take heart, come to me, take heart heart. Receive from me. Take heart. I have overcome the world. God fights our battles for us and with us. So what is the result of this transformed life? If we live the life that the Beatitudes uh, teach us, dependent on God's power, well, he tells us in the next part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 13 to 16, salt and light. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, your transformed life, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the exact call of the church, salt and life. It's the result of a transformed life. And it's not about doing. You don't do light and salt. You are salt and light. What you do flows out of who you are. That doesn't mean we shouldn't ever do things we don't want to do, but ultimately, ministry flows out of who you are and what God has done in your life. Salt and light. Not for you, but for him, what he's done. To reflect him, to show people this is how good God is. This is what he wants to do. This is true discipleship, the path of transformation. And so we end today, we end the whole series with this question. Do you want to live? 
Do you really want to be alive? Do you want to be whole? Wilt thou become whole? Jesus shows us the way. Step one, you can't do it on your own. Come to him. Come to him. And by the power of God's word, which gives us life, and the power of God's spirit inside of us, and with the power of God's people, we can become whole. And when we do that, our lives are transformed. And then our church is transformed. And then our community is transformed. And then our city is transformed. And the kingdom of God, God grows. This is what we're here for. So the question is simple. Are you in? Come to Jesus and be made whole. Will you stand as I pray for us? God, we thank you so much that you're with us, that you teach us, that you give us your word, which has the power to give life. And God, we pray that you would give us life right now as we reflect on who you are. Help us to come to you wherever we're at. Maybe we've never come to you before. Give us the power by your spirit to come to you now and give it all to you. Or maybe we're here and we've been walking away from God or struggling or we're stuck in sin. Bring us back to the first beatitude. We can't do it, but you can. So Holy Spirit, come now. Allow us to worship you through song, through communion with God's people. We pray all this in your name, Jesus, and by your spirit. Amen.